Hello and welcome to episode 14 of the Pi Podcast, the show by members of the Raspberry Pi community for the Raspberry Pi community. I'm Joe. And I'm Albert. And coming up, we'll be speaking to Andy Stanford-Clark about the Internet of Things and how the Pi fits into that world. But first, let's do some news. And first up in the news, we have uh, an update on the Astro Pi. Um, Ed and Izzy, which are the names of the two uh, Raspberry Pis that are on the space station at the moment, have been powered up. And they're going to start running their experiments soon. And the Raspberry Pi Foundation have announced uh, two new competitions. Yeah, I feel like I always say this when we talk about Astro Pi. But it's just so inspirational, isn't it? The, the fact that there's Raspberry Pis up there in space and using equipment that you can just go and buy and use in your own house. Yeah, I completely agree. Uh, as I, I mentioned before, I got the uh, the Sense hat for Christmas and it's it's just got fantastic little sensors on it, you know, to do some fun, entertaining things. And again, there's the coursework, there's the curriculum work that school kids or anybody can do the same projects on Earth and see the results. And and this time, actually, they're um, for the competition, they're focusing on on audio and music. So you have to code up uh, an MP3 player using the uh, the Sense hat. Which, if you think about it, is perfect. It's got a display, it's got a, a little joystick and a button on it, so you can select your uh, your tracks and and your music. And also, uh, I'd say Sam Aaron will be delighted. The the other competition is to uh, compose music using Sonic Pi. Yeah, to play on the MP3 player, and uh, the the MP3 player is something that's actually going to be potentially useful going forward, isn't it? it it's the kind of thing that you could make very very cheaply probably with a pi zero get some sort of battery pack and you're away you've actually got a nice mp3 player to use yeah completely customizable and speaking of the pi zero we talked about on the last show i think the the raspberry pi zero cluster and the guys who made that only had one pi zero because the of the limited supply even though the board they made could take 16 well, it looks like the Raspberry Pi Foundation has stepped up and donated the, the 15 that they needed to complete it, which is great to see. Yeah, I love this. I love this. I mean, I was gushing the last day about the backplane because that's literally what it looks like. You just plug in your Pis and that's it. So it's you know, no wiring. Most of the clusters that I've seen online, there's, you know, cable management has been the priority. But here there is no cable management because it's a backplane. Um, and also, I, again, I kind of found a... Uh, a website where there was a hint that this may go crowdfunded. So in the future, we could all be creating our own uh, 16-way Raspberry Pi Zero uh, clusters. Yeah, I can't wait. And I don't know whether it's uh, possible for this to be entered in for the uh, Astro Pi Sonic Pi competition, but somebody has created a version of uh, Daft Punk's Aerodynamic. So Sebastian Renault, I'm bound to be saying that wrong, um, has used Sonic Pi to uh, compose the music, and you can hear it and... Uh, See the code on uh, YouTube. Yeah, it really shows how versatile Sonic Pi is and how powerful it is. You start by just making the beeps and bloops and everything. But if you are willing to spend that time learning about how to do the more complex aspects of it with sampling and some of the synths, it, it is so powerful. You can make really complicated music with it. And, and you see the coding as it, it, it's playing the song and, and you see him kind of altering the code on the fly and it, it just seems to be an absolutely perfect example of what sonic pi was built for yeah and kind of kind of related there was a, a project that sort of came to light very soon after the round pi came out called the piano um, which was a a soft synth created on the raspberry pi well the uh, the raspberry pi blog has a, a post just this week where they've done the uh, doctor who theme on it 
And again, it's just, it's, it's amazing to think that a Raspberry Pi, as small as it is, has the power to be a fully featured synthesizer. Yeah, well, I mean, if you think about it, though, the synthesizers in the 70s and 80s, I mean, more specifically the 80s, the, the digital ones, the kind of computing power they had was so minimal that a Raspberry Pi is probably 10 times or more as powerful. So it's not that surprising, actually, that you can get these synths running on it. Yeah, so it, what it really means is that, you know, I mean, I, I don't know the synths in the 80s, but I would presume there was a lot of custom chips in there to do all of this. And now that can all be done in software on something as small and, and as cheap as a, a Raspberry Pi. So, you know, back in the 80s, you'd be spending, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of pounds for a, a decent synthesizer. Now the hardware itself costs you four pounds. Yeah, amazing, isn't it? Yes. So the next one, I feel really frustrated about it because I can't go to it. The fourth birthday bash in Cambridge of um, the, the Raspberry Pi's fourth birthday. I've got a prior commitment that weekend and it's really, really annoying me because I'd love to go. You're going to go, aren't you? Yeah, I'm going to I'm gonna go up there on the Saturday. I'm booked in for the Saturday and for the um, the party afterwards. I think the party finishes at something like half past seven. So I'm expecting uh, we'll all move to a restaurant or a pub for, for catching up afterwards. I made a priority for myself this year to uh, meet more people in real life, which is why I went on to the bet event and why I kind of shuffled the calendar to be able to make this for at least one day. It, um, it, I had to do some negotiations uh, in the household because the day before is my daughter's birthday <laughs> yeah. and the day after, uh, the Sunday, is Mother's Day. So um, I would expect I'll have to come back with some presents for my uh, my daughter whose birthday it is, which actually is great because she's the one I caught playing um, with Scratch one day and she just loves Minecraft. So um, she, when she came to the last Raspberry Jam with me, the thing she loved the most was the Ryan Tech Snowman. <laughs> so if if um, if Ryan is there and has a stall, I think I might have to pick up a snowman and bring it home for her. So she might end up learning to solder as well as how to program it. Oh, that'd be cool. So there's still tickets for the, the Sunday event, the Sunday daytime event, and we'll, we'll stick a link in the show notes. So yeah, go to that if, if you're available. It looks like a lot of fun. Yes, it should be. And uh, RetroPie 3.5 has been released which again is great. We had the guys on recently and they were telling us that they were actively working on it and had some uh, some updates coming down the line. The uh, big thing is they've um, put in a, a um, an early release ColecoVision emulator. I must admit that's n- not something I've ever played with in the original hardware, but I have played with some of the games on the emulators and it, it, it just feels so much fun. And then as always, there's, there's tweaks and there's changes. They've moved some of the text-based menus into the graphical GUI system and as I mentioned the last time I found that to be a huge improvement for configuring joysticks so I haven't had a chance to play with it yet because literally we got informed about it earlier today and uh, I expect it will make the same difference for the things that they've now improved to be in the GUI rather than text-based. Yeah it just seems to get better and better doesn't it? Yes. And so last up in the news not strictly Raspberry Pi related uh, is Beep Beep Yar which is a Kickstarter project by the guys who make Linux Voice. And it is a book for children that will teach them about programming without actually teaching them about programming. It kind of introduces the concepts and and some of the ideas behind computers and programming without any code or anything. But then there's a, an additional interactive element that actually does have code, and that's optional. 
and uh, there's there's various configurations of print and uh, PDF, uh, but it's it's well worth checking out, um, especially if you've got young kids who who you want to introduce to this stuff. Yeah, this might be one I'll have to look into as well. I haven't had a a good chance to see it. I had a quick look at the uh, the video for it on the uh, the Kickstarter page. So it definitely looks interesting. If you've got kids and you want to get them interested in coding, this could be a fun way to get them started because it you know it's a book. It's fun. You can do it with them. And then the coding piece is there as well to kind of move them on. But it's all part of the story. So it's not detached from their normal entertainment, if you know what I mean, which I think is just an amazing idea. And the Linux voice guys seem to be going from strength to strength as well, which is brilliant. Yeah, I actually did an interview with Graham, uh, who's the the editor of Linux Voice. I did that on Linux Luddites recently. So uh, if you want to hear more about it, do check that out. Yeah, and they have a lot of um, Raspberry Pi... Uh, appropriate uh, content in the magazine as well. And if, again, you probably know this better, Joe, but don't they make their content free, uh, open source or, or Creative Commons after nine months? Yeah, after nine months, the issues are available as PDF downloads. So there's a lot of back issues out there as well. So Magpie, fantastic for Raspberry Pi specific projects um, with an educational bent and the hardware that goes along with that. Linux Voice, if we say you wanted to set up a server or configure it in, in a different way, you know, as, as a Linux computer, then definitely check out the Linux Voice guys. They've, they've got a lot of really good content. Yeah, definitely. Right, that's it for the news then. Let's move on to the interview. We're now joined by Andy Stanford-Clark, who is IBM Distinguished Engineer for Internet of Things. So welcome, Andy. Hi, thanks very much. So can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, so as you pointed out, I work for IBM. I've been working for IBM for 25 years, in fact. It's my 25th anniversary just a week ago, so that's pretty cool. And I've done a whole load of jobs um, with IBM. It's a great thing about the company is you can move from job to job. But I've been actually working what we now call the Internet of Things for the last 17 years. I uh, designed uh, a messaging protocol called MQTT, which you may have heard of, um, 17 years ago. And I've been doing... Um, work in that area ever since. We've called it different things along the way, like pervasive computing, ubiquitous computing, SCADA, uh, machine to machine, smarter planet. But now the world settled on the title Internet of Things or IoT. And uh, I'm now the chief architect for our cloud-based IoT platform. So what got you started with the Raspberry Pi, Andy? Um, it's quite interesting, actually. When it first came out, um, I was a little bit sort of ambivalent about it because I'd got any number of headless Linux boxes kicking around my house, and this was oh, just another headless Linux box. But um, when it suddenly became apparent that people were developing loads and loads and loads of stuff for the Pi, and anything you wrote for it, you know, it was going to be picked up by loads of people, um, I got really interested in it. And in particular, the, uh, the GPIO pins meant I could uh, satisfy my lifelong passion of combining um, interacting with the real world with software, that sort of hardware-software combination. And uh, that all came together in the Pi. And um, I was somewhat involved in the development of Node-RED, which is a technology you've talked about a number of times on the podcast. And uh, Node-RED on a Pi is just a beautiful, beautiful thing. And uh, I do and I do all my development work um, on that kind of platform. So before the uh, the Pi, what did you use for GPIO type things? Um, typically plug in USB boards or serial boards. So I've got, I'm just peering around my room here at home. Um, I've got a number of um, 
sort of USB serial ports plugged into boards that fan out into GPIO and um, a couple of USB custom boards. Um, but it was it was hard. It was um, it was it was quite tricky. Uh, a lot of the sensors that I use, I'm quite into very much into home automation, and um, a lot of the sensors I used are sort of radio connected by some kind of radio connection, whether it's a proprietary 433 megahertz link or a Zigbee connection or one of the proprietary energy monitoring platforms like CurrentCost. Um, all those devices end up coming in through a receiver and then into a serial port. So handling GPIO off the actual Linux box itself typically wasn't a problem. Um, it was more sort of what's happening at the other end of the radio link. Oh, Andy, you might have just answered this, but I just want to ask it anyway. At what point did you or IBM or someone at IBM realize that the Raspberry Pi was going to be the go-to board for the Internet of Things? Um, I think it just crept up on us, really. <laughs> um, as I say, we've been using headless Linux boxes for forever. And um, it's really been a sort of, um, you know, once the initial excitement of the Raspberry Pi coming out had passed and you could actually get your hands on boards because initially there was this sort of frenetic and it must have lasted six or nine months that you just couldn't get them for love nor money because they were just selling out all the time a bit like the pi zero is now you know you still can't get hold of them um unless you're in that lucky the lucky few who got them on the front of the magazine um so once they became freely available um you know some of us at work were getting them and more and more of us were using them and then we ported node red over to it I think that's really when it took off because there was a very attractive um, platform then to develop on. And I developed an SD card image that we use for a lot of um, sort of workshops and hackathons and things. And we used the uh, the Black Gang Pi thing, which uh, Dr. Lucy Rogers talked about on a previous episode, which is a sort of completely self-booting SD card image, which has Node-RED running with all the Raspberry Pi nodes already installed and also uh, hosts G um, DHCP. So you can just plug the Pi straight into your laptop. Your laptop gets an IP address and you've got a direct Ethernet connection without having to faff around with Wi-Fi or going onto a, a router a router, and um, finding out what your IP address is. So it's a really nice platform for um, getting people up and running with the Pi. So what kind of things have you been seeing being done with uh, Node-RED? Oh, absolutely everything, <laughs> uh, from teaching people the very basics of Hello World through getting an LED flashing through to some really quite complicated factory automation projects we've done at work uh, where we use Node-RED both for rapid prototyping and also for the uh, the production environment, which is pretty cool. We also have the ability to run Node-RED in the cloud. IBM has a platform as a service called Bluemix, and Node-RED's available on there, so you can, um, having developed your logic on your laptop on Node-RED, you can then copy and paste the nodes up into Bluemix to run in the cloud or copy and paste the other half into the onto the Pi, and then it all joins up as to one end-to-end -end seamless solution. And that's the, the real thing of the Internet of Things. It's not about the sensors. It's not even about the back-end application. It's the it's the end-to-end -end story. And increasingly, we're finding it's what you do with the data that's important. So that's that back-end processing. So the, the Pi or whatever sensor you're using becomes more of a um, a sensor with some initial filtering of the data. And then the all the exciting stuff happens. You know, these sort of the deep analytics happens in the cloud. So one of the things you're known for is your hydrogen-powered Raspberry Pi. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah. Uh, so one of the projects I'm working on with IBM is a, a UK government funded project through Innovate UK to look at hydrogen as a future fuel. Uh, so it's looking at the sort of economic 
life cycle of generating hydrogen from water. So you electrolyze water and make hydrogen and oxygen. You store the hydrogen under pressure, use that as fuel uh, in a hydrogen powered vehicle. And that can either be a HICE, a hydrogen internal combustion engine vehicle, which is a modified petrol engine, which runs on hydrogen, or an FCEV, a fuel cell electric vehicle, where you do the reverse reaction of what you did in the electrolyzer. So you combine a hydrogen and oxygen over a catalyst and it makes electricity and a tiny amount of water and that charges up the batteries of your electric vehicle and the batteries make the wheels go around the electric motors. Um, so this project is looking at that on a big scale you know, we've got about six um, hydrogen powered vehicles up near Sheffield and while I was uh, involved in that project I wanted to really first of all understand what hydrogen was all about for myself but also have something very Sort of demonstrable and tangible to show people when I presented about it. So I got hold of a, a fuel cell sort of dev kit, which was a um, some little tiny little tanks of hydrogen and a fuel cell which generates 12 watts of power, and uh, linked that together through uh, an Arduino and a couple of shields which manage the the fuel cell. You have to kind of be nice to the, the fuel cell to keep it running properly. And that then generates regulated five volt output, which powers a Raspberry Pi. So those things are all arranged together on a nice Perspex board. And when I plug in the the, the hydro stick, which is the, the tube of hydrogen, it, it boots up the Raspberry Pi. And then if you plug in your projector into the HDMI socket of the Pi, up comes my presentation all about hydrogen and hydrogen economy and our project and all how the, the high Pi actually works. So it's very sort of self-referential. It's a hydrogen powered Raspberry Pi presenting about hydrogen and the Raspberry Pi. And of the, the two technologies for the cars, the, um, the retrofitted hydrogen engines are the uh, electric version. Is there kind of a, a clear leader at the moment? Um, so there are a couple on the market at the moment. There's a Hyundai uh, FCEV, which is quite popular. And I believe Toyota have just launched one called the Mirai, I think it is. But they're, they're still few and far between, mainly because there aren't many places to charge them up so, to go and refuel them. So this is obviously a problem. But there's a big project on the west coast of America to build a hydrogen corridor between San Francisco and Los Angeles. And when that's complete, you'll be able to drive your hydrogen vehicle from, from one end to the other. Um, and also, interestingly, Wales has uh, declared itself um, a, a hydrogen corridor across the bottom end over by Cardiff and Swansea and places. So it'll be quite interesting to see how that pans out. But in, if you go to London, there are, um, you can look carefully, there are quite a lot of hydrogen powered buses buzzing around. Uh, some of them are FCEVs and some are HICEs, uh, but nonetheless, they are powered by hydrogen. It's all part of uh, Boris Johnson's low, low emissions uh, scheme. So besides hydrogen powered pies and the internet of things, what else are you currently working on? I've just been, uh, I've got a, one of the um, unicorn hats for Christmas. So I've been playing with that recently. So we've, we've recently launched a, um, a node red node for the unicorn hat. And it makes it, that's a, an eight by eight grid of um, RGB LEDs that you can then control. And we've been doing something sort of plotting plotting graphs and things on it. I've got this really cool demo, which is based on the uh, the Isle of Wight ferries. I live on the Isle of Wight on the south coast of England. And 
we've got uh, tracking data from the ferries going backwards and forwards. I did this kind of little eight by eight map of the Isle of Wight and the Solent, and you can see these little dots moving around as the ferries go backwards and forwards across the Solent. So it's, it's not a high res map like a Google map, I and mean, that's, that's been done and it's you know, fair enough, but this is just a sort of very sort of um, stylized, quite arty sort of representation of the ferries, which looks really cool. I heard something about a, a, a first of April prank related to the ferries. Yeah. <laughs> ah, yes, indeed. Um, so quite a long time ago now, and uh, I think it must be at least nine years ago, I was traveling to and from the Isle of Wight, as I do um, every day cause I, as a commuter. And I was a bit frustrated by the fact that the ferries weren't running because uh, of I think it was, you know, fog or a storm or high winds or something. And Red Funnel, who runs the ferries, traditionally wasn't too good at letting people know when the ferries weren't running. You'd rock up at the ferry port and there'd be no ferries, which very frustrating having driven half an hour across the island to get there. So I thought it'd be really cool to get the data from the ferries where they were and use that to notify people when they weren't running or when they were running. So I, there's, there's a system called AIS, Automatic Identification System, which uh, is a, a GPS beacon that sort of radio transmits out where all the boats, all the big boats are. And there's a crowdsourced uh, effort called Ship Plotter to bring all that data in. So you can go to pretty much anywhere in the world and find out what ships are around by looking in the Ship Plotter database. So I wrote a little Perl program. This was long before the days of Node Red. So um, I wrote a little Perl program on my laptop, sitting there at the ferry port, my 3G dongle. Uh, it's probably a GPRS dongle in those days. And uh, wrote a program to pull down the locations of all the Isle of Wight ferries, and then use geofencing to find out when they were near the ferry ports and then send out a message which went to Twitter. So if you look on Twitter, there's red jets, which is um, the, the, the red jet ferry. There's red underscore ferry, which is the vehicle ferries. And all the different ferries have their own Twitter feed. So as they come and go, it'll say things like red jet fees arriving uh, in West Cows, uh, red jet fours leaving Southampton. And you can see from the timestamps if they're running on time or running late or not at all. So that was the service I set up um, to help myself really as a commuter most of my inventions are solutions to real world problems. This was a, a solution to a real world problem. Are the ferries running? And uh, loads of people were using this Twitter feed and were tweeting back to say how much they liked it and how handy it was and how useful it was. Uh, but, the, but the ferry company wasn't involved at all. And I did actually send them an email to say, um, have, have you seen the Twittering red jets? You know, do, do you think it's cool? Hoping they write back and go, oh yes, who did that? I mean, you know, I could say, oh, it was me, it was me. Uh, but they totally ignored my email. But one day, and this is now coming back to your point of the the uh, the, the prank, um, it was April the first, and I was looking up on the red, on the Red Funnel website um, the ferry times for a friend coming over to see us, and I noticed just above the timetable it said there's a whole list of things saying current live positions, Red Jet threes arrived in Southampton, Red Jet fours leaving West Cows, and so on. Thought, oh, that's cool! They've got uh, live positions the same as I've got. I wonder where the data's coming from. And I clicked through the link, and it went to my Twitter page. So what they were doing was pulling an RSS feed off Twitter and merging it live into their website, which is pretty cool, I have to admit. But they, they hadn't asked me or told me or anything, so I was a bit sort of miffed about that. Um, so because it was April the 1st, and because I could, I thought I'd play a little trick on them. So I logged into Twitter and injected a message. And this is a, a UK-centric line coming up here, so all your worldwide listeners will have to go and look on Google Maps to see. It said, Red Jet 4s arrived in Milton Keynes. <laughs> now, Milton Keynes is not by the sea. You cannot get there by boat. Uh, it's right in the middle of the country, and uh, it's the least likely place for a ferry to show up. But that became the official status of Red Jet 4 
for the next hour as it worked its way down this list, which I thought was hilarious. So I screen grabbed it and blogged it and we um, got on Twitter and it, it was um, talk talk of the town for, for a few hours. And eventually I sort of felt a bit guilty about it. So I phoned Red Funnel and said, have you seen where Redjet 4 is? He said, yes, we've just noticed. I think we should meet. I think we should. So we, we met the next morning and I was expecting to get sort of get into trouble for hacking into the system or something. But um, actually they were very grateful that I'd actually um, introduced them to social media because they didn't really have any clue about Twitter. Uh, and they said, you know, you've got a ready-made solution. Can we buy it, please? So this was sort of the easiest sale in IBM's history. And uh, they, they became customers of the system. The, um, the solution now runs in Red Funnel's data center in Southampton. The, uh, the failover site, should that ever go down, is actually a Raspberry Pi in my study. But don't tell them that because they think they've got an official <laughs> DR site somewhere. <laughs> uh, and that was it, really. And that, but interestingly, that was a real tipping point for Red Funnel, not only you know, did they set up screens in the terminals to show um, you know, maps with the positions of the boats on? Uh, they've got a mobile app which shows where all the boats are. But more importantly, the staff actually engage on Twitter now. So you can tweet them and say, you know, uh, is this wind going to cause problems? Or when's the last ferry tonight? Or how much does it cost to go on a Sunday or something like that? And they'll answer you back, which is absolutely fantastic. And it's all that was all triggered by this automated service that kind of made them realize there was a another way of getting to their customers, uh, i.e. through Twitter. So it was uh, it was pretty cool. They yeah uh, they really like it, and they they often talk about it at conferences and stuff. So it's uh, quite a, quite an exciting project, even now nine years later. <laughs> <laughs> so earlier on, you mentioned MQTT, and uh, recently Adafruit introduced that to their io.adafruit.com site. Can you tell us a little bit about what it is and, and why it's important? Yeah, sure. So M MQTT is a, um, a very lightweight messaging protocol for linking sensors to the internet or linking sensors to uh, other sensors or applications that consume the data. It uses what's called a publish and subscribe model, which is kind of intuitively what you think. So the publishers are the people who generate the data and the subscribers are the people who receive the data. And in the middle, you have a, a sort of clearing house or broker, as it's called. So the publishers connect to the broker and publish their messages, maybe temperature of my greenhouse, maybe 13, 12, 13, 10. Um, and then anybody who wants to receive that data subscribes to the broker and says, oh, can you give me the data from Andy's greenhouse, please? And the way it says that is that each message that's been published has a topic, which is a bit like the a sort of subject line of an email address. It tells you what the message is about. And that's arranged as a hierarchy, so a bit like a URL uh, with sort of, so it might be um, Andy's house slash greenhouse slash temperature, let's say. Uh, so if I wanted that as a subscriber, I could type in, I could subscribe to that, like that string. And then anytime my greenhouse published a temperature, anybody who subscribed to that, whether it's one, two, or a thousand people will simultaneously or roughly simultaneously receive uh, the message and it's all in real time so you don't have to keep polling for it like you do with things like rss it's genuine it's genuinely pushed so you keep a socket connection open to the broker and as soon as the publish comes in the broker sends it out down each of the sockets directly to each of the subscribers and um, that's pretty much it really it's it's a it's a way of transporting data it's called a, a data transport and that means that we don't care what you send you can send anything you like a bit like the postal service so you wrap it up in brown paper send it off and you don't need to worry about whether it goes by 
truck or plane or boat or some combination of those things, you decide what you want to send and what will you do with it when it gets to the other end. And that's what MQTT does for you. So you don't need to worry about that gawpy bit in between of actually how to get the message physically from A to B. And it's, uh, as I mentioned in the introduction, I developed it 17 years ago, uh, initially for oil and gas pipeline monitoring solutions. Um, but then we found applications in other industries like um, vehicle telematics and healthcare and agriculture and home automation and pretty much you name it, MQTT works there. And um, after a long journey uh, last year, no, the year before, so 2014, um, it became an international standard through the OASIS standards body. And uh, it's now used by hundreds of millions of people. It's become the, the de facto uh, messaging protocol for the Internet of Things. So the big uh, cloud IoT providers, so IBM, Microsoft, and Amazon, all support MQTT on their cloud infrastructure. Uh, so I'm pretty proud of that, really. That's, that's a pretty cool, a pretty good outcome. That's fantastic. Are the uh, devices supporting it? Are, you know, the sort of packaged little products that you can buy, or are they using something else still? Yeah, some are. Um, it's, it's still a work in progress. Um, so you can buy, you can get um, MQTT clients for almost any language you can think of. If you go to mqtt.org, there's a, a page on there which has got um, implementations, all open source, of uh, both clients and, and several brokers that you can get. Um, Mosquito is the classic one that was developed by Roger Light, um, who came to my talk at the first OG camp, uh, which is a open source unconference um, organized originally by the uh, Ubuntu podcast team and uh, Linux Outlaws. And um, I gave a talk at that where I mentioned MQTT and somebody asked one of the questions from the audience, is that a proprietary IBM thing um, or is it open source? And I said, well, it's the specification is public domain. We put it straight into public domain as soon as we developed it back in 1998. But nobody apart from IBM had developed, had implemented uh, the broker solution. So it seemed like it was IBM proprietary. But I said, you know, between you and me and the 150 people in the room, if somebody did an open source implementation of the broker, that would be really cool. And so Roger Light rushed home and uh, registered the name Mosquito, who just got a MQ and two Ts in it, Mosquito with two Ts, very clever, um, and developed a, a C code base uh, for an MQTT broker. And I think that was the tipping point, really, because that's, that's when it was seen as a, a, a truly open thing available for everybody, rather than just something that was for big corporations to use on, our, on their SCADA systems. And uh, I think that was really where it took off. If you use um, Facebook on uh, Facebook Messenger on iOS, that uses MQTT under the covers. If you look on the, uh, the credits page, it actually references the uh, Mosquito libraries that it uses. So it's, uh, yeah, so that's pretty cool. So it's, um, it's really taken off in the last four or five years, really. It's, it's you know, talk about exponential growth. It's really, really snowballed. And with the Raspberry Pi now, it makes it easier for the hackers, the makers, and the general public and to take advantage of it and also for uh, people in education to start doing this connected Internet of Things thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So Node-RED has sort of first-class support for MQTT, as you might expect. And the uh, if you put a copy of Mosquito onto your Raspberry Pi, then you can talk to the local host broker and sort of send messages to yourself, which is a great way of learning about messaging and PubSub and that sort of disconnected, decoupled way of doing things. So rather than direct function calls, the idea of sending something to a broker and then having it go on to, to other people that you may or may not know about. So, so that, that the asynchronous messaging model 
Um, and then having talked to local hosts, you can then connect to some other broker, maybe on somebody else's Raspberry Pi in the same classroom, or maybe to a broker on the internet. Um, and then suddenly you're sending messages to yourself at the uh, at the Black Gang Pi weekend. We uh, got everybody who had any kind of roaring device, so uh, any of the dinosaur implementations that roared in any way, we had them all subscribe to the same raw topic on one broker. So then you could publish a command, and then suddenly the whole room would be filled with these raw, raw, there's all these MP3 files played and motors rocked and dinosaurs wagged their tails and things as they all um, sort of chimed in when they were triggered. So that was a really magical moment. Well, Andy, it's been absolutely brilliant talking to you. And uh, I feel like we've only scratched the surface of uh, the things that you're involved with. And we, we could have spoken to you for hours, but um, time gets on as usual. So if people want to find you on the internet, apart from your Wikipedia page, where's the best place? <laughs> um, I'm at Andy SC on Twitter. That's probably the best place to get me. And I'm stanford-clark.com uh, is, is my website, where there are links to some of those things. But it tends to lag a bit behind because I never remember to update it but uh and dsc on twitter is the best way to find me excellent well uh, yeah thanks a lot for giving us your time and hopefully speak to you again soon thank you great pleasure yeah it was great to get to talk to uh to andy i loved his story about uh, making the boats appear in milton Keynes because as i said if anybody checks a uk map it the, there's no there's no <laughs> yeah. ferries pulling into milton Keynes. it's not happening yeah. so I, I i like i liked his sense of humor and then MQTT, you know, this is this is something that's becoming a fundamental part of the Internet of Things. It's it's, you know, it's it's cleaner, it's faster, it's more reliable, it's it's more lightweight than um, using, you know, HTTP or any other protocol that's available on the Internet at the moment. And so it means that, to be honest, it'll be able to handle the volume. You know, if you have a, a device that's sending back a huge amount of data then this appears to be the way to use it. And as we mentioned in the podcast, even Adafruit are, are putting it into their services to make it available for, you know, the hacker community and anybody who wants it. So there is a there are services appearing online to make it easy for you. Yeah, and with that, we're coming to the end of another Pi Podcast. If you want to get in contact, you can email show at thepipodcast.com or find us on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, Stitcher, iTunes, or leave a comment on the website. Thanks for joining me, Albert, and thanks to everyone for listening. We'll see you again in two weeks for more Raspberry Pi news, interviews, and discussion. Take care. See you later.